So um, something came home with our kids, uh, two of our kids, about a month ago. We knew this was coming. Uh, the school does this school project about every year close to Thanksgiving. And uh, let me just say this about school projects. School projects, that's probably not the right language for it. For us, at least, it's not a school project. It is a full-on, all-in-house family project when something comes home with our kids. So, but we, like I said, we knew this was coming. They do it every year. It's kind of become a thing, at least in preschool and early elementary world. Uh, so this came home and parents, if you got young kids, you know what I'm talking about. It is the Turkey Disguised Project. You laugh because you know what this is. For those of you that have no clue, just Google Turkey Disguised School Project and you'll see what I'm talking about. Well, what they do is they send you home with a a paper turkey, and then the kids can decide how to disguise it with the intent of, there's like a whole story behind it, doesn't really matter, but it's like, hey, disguise your turkey so it doesn't get eaten on Thanksgiving. I'm like, that's morbid. Anyway, so here's what ours ended up looking like. I'm pretty proud of this. This is what, this is what our disguised turkey looked like. Not bad, right? But here's the story behind it. So it comes home and the kids get all excited. Like, here's what we want to do. We ask kids, what do you want to disguise your turkey as this year? This year, they said, we want to disguise it as Santa Claus. Like, that's great. So Becky helped the kids get on Pinterest because that's what you do when you have kids and you have to do a school project. You get on Pinterest and then you search for it. And so they were scrolling through and they found the Santa that they wanted that, let's just say it looked just like that. Just, let's just say that ours looked just like the Pinterest version of that. And Becky looks at the phone where it's given a resemblance of that picture, and I see her eyes get huge. She comes over in the other room with me while the kids are still searching. She's like, Brian, I can't do this project. And you have to understand, in our house, Becky and I do a pretty good job of tag-teaming different parts of their school projects. When it comes to like science fair stuff, that's me. Presentations, I'm on it. But any of the artsy, crafty stuff, that's all Becky. I just don't think that way. It never turns out well. I'm not an artist whatsoever. And so for Becky to look at me, eyes big at what we're, what we're gonna have to make, she says, there's no way I can do this project. And so I take a closer look at what we were having to make and I'm like, oh, that's right. Oh, Becky, there's no way you can do this project. Here's something you need to know about my wife. And no, I did not get permission to share this today. So we'll see how that goes later on. <laughs> my wife has a phobia of cotton balls, <laughs> not joking. Maybe phobia is a little too strong of a word. She cannot have cotton balls in our house. We do not keep cotton balls in our house. It's something about like the texture that just bothers her. In fact, if you really wanna see this and if you wanna try this, I mean, you can do anything once, I guess, but go up to my wife and say, cotton balls, and she'll freak out. Like she just can't handle it. She doesn't have very many quirky things about her, but that's her one thing is she can't be around cotton balls, can't see cotton balls, can't think about cotton balls, can't talk about cotton balls. And so for this project, it takes cotton balls. So she's like, Brian, I cannot do this project. You're going to have to do it. And I'm like, this is an art project, Becky. Do you understand what my, I have limitations just like you do. She's like, you're going to have to figure it out. I can't even be in the same room with you. So I have to go and buy a huge bag of cotton balls. Like I said, we do not keep cotton balls in the house. And so I show up, man, and I'm prepared. I get the cotton balls. I've got the glitter glue. I got all the foam stuff and, and whatever else had to go on that thing. And I'm like, kids, I'm ready. I'm going to be the one to help you with this project. And I'm thinking I get to be like that savior dad, that hero dad that swoops in and helps him with this amazing project. And as soon as I say, dad's here to help, help is here. My kids immediately ask, where's mom? 
And I'm like, no, 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 like, guys, it's cotton balls. You know your mom and cotton balls. Don't say cotton balls in our house. But she's like, no, 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 dad. Like, this is a big project. I'm like, I know, and I'm gonna do a great job. And they're like, mom. <laughs> and she's already left the house just because we're talking about cotton balls. So here I am trying to be the hero, the savior for their project. And my kids are like, lame. That's not what we were hoping for. We wanted like mom to help, not you, dad. But I'm pleased to say, like I showed you the picture, I think I did a decent job. I mean, could have been a whole lot worse. Mom would have done better, but dad held on to it and did a decent job. And then we threw away the cotton balls afterwards. So here's why I tell you that whole story. Because the idea of being a hero is great and people want heroes. But what happens when your hero is not what you thought it was going to be? What happens when the hero is not who you thought it would be? What happens when that hero shows up and doesn't do what you thought or expected that hero to truly do? In this series, as we're moving closer and closer to Christmas, we've been looking at the Old Testament promises or prophecies that point to Jesus. Throughout Scripture, as humans, we recognize that we cannot save ourselves. Throughout history, humans realized they were in trouble and could not save themselves, so they needed a Savior. They needed a Messiah. And God, through his prophets, continued to promise a savior is coming. Help is on the way. Yes, you need help. And yes, I'm going to send you help. So we have all of these different promises and prophecies, well over 300 of them throughout the Old Testament, pointing to Jesus. Some of them even point specifically to Jesus's birth. And that's the, prophet, the prophecy or the promise we're going to look at this morning. In Micah chapter 5, we get a prophecy or a promise talking not just about Jesus, but a specific aspect of his birth that's going to teach us quite a bit this morning. Here it is. Micah chapter 5. This is written a little over 700 years prior to Jesus being born. And here's what God prophesied through his prophet Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. So all that's talking about the birth of Jesus, the birthplace of Jesus, and the ruler is Jesus. Verse 3, some not so exciting news. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed for he will be highly honored around the world. And I love this last part. And he will be the source of peace. An incredible promise, a prophecy that points yes to the savior coming but also some very specifics about that Savior's birth, specifically the, the location, Bethlehem. Now, here's what I want you to, to think about if you were to hear this promise or this scripture reading again. You're probably not thinking of it in these terms now, so I'm going to help you so that next time you'll think of it in this way. Two words I want to come to mind when you read Micah's prophecy, joy and humility. Joy and humility. We're going to talk a lot about those two words the rest of the morning. Joy makes a lot of sense, right? You read this, and again, if you knew some of the history and the, and the story, we talked a little bit about that last week when we talked about Elizabeth and, and Zachariah and what they were waiting for and all the troubles that they went through as Israelites. But they were given a promise. 
We need a savior. And God's through Micah says, yes, you are going to have a savior. A ruler whose origins are in the distant past will come from, from you on my behalf. God is going to show up. God is sending Messiah, a Messiah, Savior, as we would know him as Jesus. So there's joy there. Now, this joy is a little interesting, and this is where you really begin to understand the difference between joy and happiness. Not if you know those are two very, very different things. Yes. So what you see here, notice how things get worse, right? So you're going to have this ruler. You're going to have this Savior that's going to save you. We've been waiting for it. Verse 3, but the people of Israel would be abandoned to their enemies. That doesn't sound like very good news. <laughs> In other words, things are going to get a lot worse before the Savior shows up. Things are going to get a lot worse before things get better. So the joy that the Israelites would have had from this promise that God is giving them is, yes, we're going to have a Savior, but not quite yet. Like, we're going to have one. And so often we want the joy in the present. We want this to read, and I'm bringing you a ruler of Israel today. Like we want things taken care of now, in the moment, in the situation, we want it taken care of today. But that borderlines more unhappiness. This joy is a joy that the Israelites held on to for what was to happen, for what was to come. They didn't know when, but they knew it was going to happen. So there's a joy attached to this prophecy or this promise that yes, God has heard their prayers. God knows what they need. They are desperate for a savior, a redeemer, a Messiah, and God is gonna send them one. But then you read that first part. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the rulers of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you. So yes, this Messiah, the savior's coming, but wait, did I read that right? From Bethlehem? Like, did you say Bethlehem is where this hero is coming from? Bethlehem, this small, even Micah talks about Bethlehem, a small village among all the people of Judah. You are so small, you're tiny, you're insignificant. Nothing significant comes out of Bethlehem. So you're telling me that we're going to have joy for something that's eventually going to happen, and it's going to happen out of Bethlehem? This teeny, tiny, small, insignificant, one stoplight town. That's where this is going to happen. Humility. See, why did God choose Bethlehem? See, this prophecy is not just about a physical location. It's also giving us insight into who God is, what he deeply cares about, and he's giving us even more so insight into who this Messiah would be. By choosing Bethlehem, again, this small insignificant town, to be where the Messiah would be born, God is showing and highlighting not just the character of humility that he has, but the desire he has for us to have humility as well. Because think through it. This humble savior, this humble king, would be born in very humble circumstances, in a manger, which is a feeding trough. Doesn't get much more humbling than that. He would live a humble life. He would teach the value of humility. He would, in fact, get on his knees and humble himself as he washed his followers' feet, even the one that would betray him. He humbled himself to obedience that led him to a death on a cross. So Bethlehem is not just where Jesus would be born. It's also helping us understand who this Messiah would be the humble king, the humble savior. 
So yes, there is joy in this promise, but there's also humility all throughout this promise because God is making a point when he says it will be, it will happen in Bethlehem. Now, those two themes of joy as well as humility, we're going to see throughout the Christmas story. For in fact, this humble king, this humble savior would be first announced by angels to a very humble group of people. And that humble group of people are going to receive such great joy because of the news that they'd been told. Who are we talking about? The shepherds, this humble group of people that were told of good news that would bring great joy. So let's look at the story of the shepherds. We're going to see Micah's promise, that prophecy we just read, come to be fulfilled when the angels appear to the shepherds. And we're going to again see those two themes of humility as well as joy. So if you have a Bible, Luke chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 8, the story of the shepherds. If you don't have a Bible, would love for you to have one right outside next to where you got your coffee this morning. Uh, there's a stack of Bibles. If you need one, don't have one, please. That's our gift to you. Take one, hang on to it, use it during the week, and then bring it back with you on Sundays. Luke chapter two, here's the story of the shepherds. Again, be looking for the themes of joy and humility. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And that would have been nearby, just so you know, nearby Bethlehem. They would have been on the outskirts of the town that Micah prophesied about. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, which makes total sense. That's a theme we see. Anytime an angel shows up to a human, they get scared. But the angel reassured them. Also something we always see when an angel shows up. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you, and here's that line that you hear quoted all the time throughout the Christmas season. The angel says, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to who? This is important, to who? To all people. Good news that will bring great joy to all people. The angel goes on, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Right there, we see Micah's prophecy, we just read out chapter five, fulfilled. The angel said he's born in Bethlehem, just like God spoke through Micah over 700 years prior, that this king, this ruler, this humble king and humble ruler would be born in a very humble town. Oh, we love seeing, you see it throughout scripture where God loves using the humble. Humble people like the shepherds and humble places like Bethlehem. So here we see the promise fulfilled as it points to our humble savior. Now the angels say several things here. The first obvious, don't be afraid. We've talked about that last week. It's what angels always say when they show up to scared people, don't be afraid. But the second part of what they say is again, that line you always hear and it's very significant. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. That all people is so significant. Notice the angels didn't show up to kings and palaces. They showed up and announced the birth of our savior to shepherds in a field. There's not many other groups of people that would have been viewed as humble and lowly as shepherds. I mean, just think about the, the role of a shepherd and the day of a shepherd. You're spending 90 plus percent of your life out on the outskirts of town with a bunch of sheep. You get a little weird if you spend most of your time with sheep. That's just, you're going to be a little bit of an awkward, strange person at some point, probably, not a lot of social interaction there, except with your other shepherds who are also very weird. So it's a very humbling job. It's a dirty job. It's out on the outskirts of town. And that's who the angels showed up to. That's who God 
declared the birth of Jesus to first, to all people. This joy is for everyone because it's not based on situations, it's not based on circumstance, it's not based on status, it's not based on finances, it's not based on your career, it's not based on who you know. That good news that brings great joy is for everyone, is for all people. Because it's based on Jesus. Not based on anything else, but it's based on the good news of Jesus. So let me say it this way. Joy is for everyone because Jesus came for everyone. That's the angel's announcement. That good news, that the prophecy is fulfilled, that the promise of a savior is kept. God remembered and kept his promise. And it's for everyone. Not just for certain groups of people. Not just for the elite spiritually. It's for everyone because Jesus came for everyone. So right where you're sitting, you have the ability to have joy only because of what Jesus has done, only because of who Jesus is today for you and for me. We can have joy. Everyone can have joy because our joy is found in Jesus and he came for all of us. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Verse 12, here's the next part of the story. The angel begins to give some descriptions and some instructions on how to find this humble savior. Verse 12, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Again, does it get more humbling than that? Verse 13, suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, which I love this next part, you've got this huge announcement starting with one angel about good news, joy, what's going on, and then this multitude of angels, heaven's armies show up and start praising God, and then they disappear in an instant. So now you have these shepherds that are like, what just happened? I didn't just, this wasn't just me, right? Like we all saw the same thing. Verse 15, when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Verse 16, so they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. It doesn't matter how many times I teach or preach or read through uh, the story of the shepherds, I can never get past this part. It cracks me up every single time. That here again, this multitude of angels, this amazing announcement, Jesus Christ is born in this town of Bethlehem that was prophesied 700 years prior. And the first thing the shepherd said is, let's go to Bethlehem and let's see this thing. I love that. Again, it kind of points to a little bit of the, the awkwardness and maybe the humbleness of this group of shepherds that are like, I don't really know what's going on right now. <laughs> like moms in the room. How would you like it if all the guys just, when your child was born, you said, hey, let's go see that thing. Like, no, no, like that thing has a name. You don't just say that thing. And so here the shepherds don't know what's going on. But I absolutely love the posture of the shepherds. As much as they did not know, and if we're taking scripture for, for literal what it's worth here, I feel like they don't know much about the prophecies prior to. Like, I'm sure they would have known some things, but not a lot, or else we probably would have heard very different language from the shepherds. Something like, oh, finally, the angels are talking about the prophecy in Micah chapter five, it happened. That's not what they said. It was, let's go to Bethlehem. That was the town they said, right? So let's go see this thing that these angels were talking about. 
I love the posture of the shepherds, though. In the midst of not knowing much of anything, the unknown, don't miss this, the unknown drove them to find Jesus. And I pray that that would be the case for you as well. That the unknowns in your life today would drive you to find Jesus. That the uncertainties in your life that you're dealing with, that you're walking through, that you're stressed about, that you're anxious about, that you're worried about, that the uncertainties would move you closer to Jesus. That would cause you to dig deeper into your faith and deeper into God's word. That it would ignite in your heart a passion of pursuit to hurry and find Jesus. Truth be told, the unknowns and the uncertainties more times than not in our lives tend to push us away from Jesus, don't they? When I don't know what's happening, I begin to isolate myself. When I'm in the midst of uncertainties, I begin to isolate myself and push people and God away. And the shepherds do the exact opposite. When they don't know, when they don't understand, they hurry to Jesus to find him. So whatever unknowns and uncertainties you are walking through today, let that drive you to find Jesus. Hurry to be closer to him and allow that pursuit to continue until you find him. So that's what the shepherds did. They hurried to find Jesus and then they find him. And we got through all of that in the last 20 minutes to get to this next part. Verse 17. After seeing him, talking about Jesus, after seeing Jesus, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. They were amazed. Verse 19, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. Verse 20, the shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all that they had seen and heard. It was just as the angel had told them. Do you catch the joy here with the shepherds? After they saw Jesus, they told everybody. They couldn't help but tell other people. That's what happens when your joy is based on Jesus and not life situation and circumstances. Because no matter what we walk through, high, low, good, bad, when our hope and joy and peace and trust and faith is in Jesus and Jesus alone, it doesn't matter the roller coaster of life that we're on because we can still have joy because of who he is, what he's done, and what he's promised to us. And so here, the shepherds are experiencing that kind of joy. After they saw Jesus, they told everyone that would listen. Not just the people they knew, not just the people that were close to them, not just their other shepherd friends. They told everybody what they had seen, who they had met. And then they go back to their job praising and glorifying God. So let me, let's lean in here just for a second. Because we look at the shepherd's story at this part, like, man, they're like totally different people telling everybody about Jesus, praising God in the streets, going back to their fields, glorifying him. Wow, a lot has changed. I would say not a lot has changed. So yeah, they met Jesus, but outside of that, like let's go through what stayed the same for the shepherds. We're told in verse 20, the shepherds went back to their flocks. So they still have the same job, still shepherds. Nothing's changed. They're going back to their flocks, the same sheep that they had prior to meeting Jesus. So nothing's changed there. 
Let's make some assumptions here that they're also making the same pay. It's not like they met Jesus and he gave them a raise. No, they go back to their same flocks with the same job, same pay, the same fields. Let's keep making some assumptions here that I think would be accurate. The same relationships, the same family, the same problems, the same issues, the same struggles, the same hardships. We could go, a list, go through a list of all the things that would have been the same for the shepherds, yet they had joy now. And really, there was only one thing that changed. Verse 17, after seeing Jesus, when they met Jesus, their situation did not change, but something inside of them changed. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus can change everything in you, even if nothing changes around you. And we love to reverse that. We want it to be reversed. We want Jesus to change everything around us. We want the raise and we want the different job and we want the career and we want the promotion and we want the status and we want the fill in the blank. And then we can obtain joy is what we think. But what we see, not just through scripture alone, but through this specific story here, is that's not how joy works that we have joy because of what Jesus has done in us. And that is what changes everything in us. And you know what? The life might look very similar. You might be going back to a very same life, but you have Jesus in your heart and that changes everything. And that's where we get our joy. Let's go a step further in. Let's make this a little bit practical because at this point it's like, it's great, I know Jesus, I'm supposed to have joy. Life is still very difficult right now, Brian. What am I supposed to do with it? There's two ways to, to find your joy. And we see this in what we've looked at so far between Micah and the shepherds. One of them is looking at what God has already done in the past. Look at what God's done, recognize it for what it is and have joy for what God has done. The other is looking in the present and the future. God, what are you doing and what have you promised me? So let's talk about those two real quick. First one is have joy because what God has done, what he has already done in the past. That's what we see with the story of the shepherds here. They praised God, glorified God. They had joy because of what God has already done. They just found it to be true for the first time in their own lives. Let me put this up here. This might help you understand it a little bit differently here. So that line with the shepherds, right? The shepherds went back to their flocks, went back to their regular lives, their regular fields, their normal day job. They went back to it. But here's what changed, glorifying and praising God. So there's the joy. Why did they have so much joy? Here it is, because of all they had heard and seen. That's past tense for what they saw God do, for what God promised them and what they saw to be true, right? So it's they recognized what God had done by sending Jesus. They saw it, it happened. Now they had joy. So let's make this super personal. Go to the next slide for me and we're gonna take out the shepherd story and I'm gonna have you put your life in here. So put your name in this first part. So Brian went back to his, and what do I go back to? What do you go back to? What's Monday morning look like for you? Goes back to your job or your career or your home or your family or your problem, whatever you wanna put in there. Brian went back to his job, glorifying and praising God for what? What, what, what do you praise God for right there? That's where you start to look back. 
And you say, God, even though maybe today is difficult or man, what I'm going back to is hard right now, I'm gonna look back and I'm gonna find something that you've done and I'm gonna hold on to it. I'm gonna be thankful for it and grateful for it. I'm gonna have joy because of it. And if you can't find anything to be thankful for, for what God's done for you already, let me give you this one that the shepherds had. That God loved you so much that he sent his one and only son from heaven to earth as a humble baby to die a humiliating death on a cross for you and for me. So no matter what you're walking back into, you can walk into it glorifying and praising God and having joy because of what God has already done for you. Even when the situation isn't great, you can hold on to what God has already done for you and that can give us joy. That's one way you find joy. Let's talk about the present moving into the future. You can have joy, you can find joy because of what God is doing. Now, this is a tricky one, let's be honest. You don't always see what God is doing in the middle of it, do you? Like we even sang that song earlier, even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, I have to trust that you're doing something, right? So we don't always see it in the moment. So it's hard to find joy in the middle of a situation that's rough, in the middle of a crisis, in the middle of a trauma, in the middle of a difficulty, in the middle of a struggle. It's hard to find joy in it. So let me help you by asking some questions. Let me put these up there. These are things that I use, and I think it'll be helpful for you. Um, It might be helpful to maybe take a picture or write these down. I don't know if you're gonna have enough time to write them down, but let me walk you through what I mean by these. Here's how you can find joy in the moment, no matter the difficulty. First question, what is God teaching me? What does God teach me in this moment of struggle, stress, worry, difficulty? God, are you trying to just teach me something? Right, so much of what we learn about Jesus is him teaching his followers. So maybe in the moment, I'm not saying God caused it, but he's definitely gonna use it as a teachable moment. I do that with my kids all the time. I don't cause things to happen all the time in their life, but I'll use them as teachable moments. So God, what are you teaching me? And in the midst of being taught something, I can find joy because the great teacher is still involved in my life and teaching me something. Second question, what is God developing in me? The moment you say yes to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, you begin a lifelong journey of growing into the man or woman of God he desires you to be. So he's developing you. He's growing you. So when you are in a difficult situation, when it's hard to find joy in what you're walking through, this question is great. God, what are you developing in me? Are you trying to develop patience in me? Are you trying to grow love in me when it's hard to love others? Little side note, chances are good. The answer to this question is in Galatians chapter five, the fruit of the spirit. He's probably trying to develop in you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Maybe he's trying to develop something in you. We read about this in, in James chapter one even. My dear brothers and sisters, anytime you face trials or testings of any kind, consider it pure joy because it's going to produce something in you. It's gonna develop something in you. So God, what are you developing in me right now? I can find joy in it. Third question, what is God trying to remove from me? This is like the opposite of the developing question. We all have those rough edges that God is trying to smooth out. There's always something in us that God is trying to pull out of our hands. This one's a difficult one because sometimes that difficult situation is God trying to pry our fingers open, which that hurts worse, by the way, to get us to let go of something to get us to let go of something that's not of him. So by saying, God, what are you trying to remove from me? You're saying, God, clean me out. 
I want to be more like you, so what needs to be removed and I can find joy in that? The fourth question, how do I need to depend more on God? Do you notice that you need to trust God more in the hard times than the good times? That we need to depend on him more when it's most difficult and dark than when it's great and light and blessed? So I'm gonna say something and I want you to give me a little bit of grace in how I say this if it doesn't come across well. Deal, give me the benefit of the doubt here. (laughs) I'm not trying to minimize your situation at all. There are some things that you have and are going through that are horrific. So I'm not making light of that whatsoever. And I'm not saying they're good. However, if a difficult or a traumatic situation forces you to depend more on God, we can find joy there. Not finding joy in what has happened to you not finding joy in the trauma or the crisis. Please don't mishear me. But if that situation forces you to rely and depend more on him, that's a reason to have joy. So God, how am I having to depend more on you? Last question, ask yourself, how might God want to use me where I am with what I have? So much of life that steals our joy is the lack of contentment, isn't it? God, I just want more. God, if I had more, then I would be happy. That's different. God, if you would just give me this, then I could do that. And what this question says is, God, whatever you've given me, wherever I'm currently at today, whatever I've got, how do you want to use me? And if he can use these humble shepherds to spread the news about Jesus' birth, I think he can use me and you where we are with what we have. And we can find joy right where we are. Again, because our joy is not based on situation. It's not based on circumstances. Our joy is based only in Jesus, what he's done, who he is, and what we have promised from him, the gift of eternal life. There is a word, we've talked about a lot of words. I get that joy and humility being two big ones. There is a word in that prophecy in Micah, I want to highlight and point, point out real fast. It's what I call a hinge word. It's a really important word. Micah chapter five, but you, O Bethlehem, you're small, teeny, insignificant. Yeah, 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 we get it. And then there's this word, yet. Yet a ruler of Israel will come. That word yet, again, I say it as, or I call it a hinge word because it shows here's the reality, yet something's going to change. Here's the reality, yet something different is going to happen. Here's the reality, yet. And there's a change. There's the reality that Bethlehem is a small and insignificant town, yet God is going to use it for his glory. There's a very difficult situation you're walking through, yet you're going to find joy in it. Do you see how the word yet is a hinge word? Not if you understand what I'm saying here. There's another instance of yet being used in the book of Habakkuk. What a great name. Habakkuk, you've probably never heard of it before, but Habakkuk had an interesting conversation with God. And there's a short little three book, um, Old Testament book that you ought to read on your own. We'll probably do a series on it because it's that fascinating. But here's the premise of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is angry with God. God, why are you allowing your people to suffer? Why are you not showing up? Why is this happening? Why haven't you? Like it's all these complaints to God. And God patiently listens and gives a response. Habakkuk didn't like his answer. So he said, well, what about this? And how about that? And you should. So they go back and forth for a little bit. 
Habakkuk complaining and God responding. Habakkuk accusing and God patiently and graciously responding until finally we get to the very end of Habakkuk's complaint and he finally starts to understand where God is at. And at the very end of the book, chapter three out of Habakkuk, here's what he says. Listen for the hinge word yet. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails, and the fields lie empty and barren. Even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty. Do you hear the devastation there? There's nothing good about that situation. There's nothing good happening there. Verse 18, say it with me. What's the hinge word? Yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be, full, I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. That's how we find joy. Even though, and fill in your blanks just like Habakkuk did, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, not in anything or anyone else. I will be joyful because God is my salvation, because he sent Jesus to earth, humbly, to live humbly, to teach humility, and to die a humiliating death for you and for me. But we know the end of the story, but he was exalted sit at the right hand of God, preparing a place for us in heaven for all those who believe in him. So how do you find joy? Our joy is found in his humility. That's where you find joy. Look for what God has done. Look for what he is doing. Look at what he's promised us. And that's how we hold on to joy, no matter what we walk through. Because again, our joy is only found in the humility of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for who you are, a God full of that humility, so much humility that you would send your son to earth to be with us, to walk with us, to teach us, and yes, most importantly, to die for us. We celebrate his death, we celebrate his resurrection because that's what gives us life and freedom from sin and death. So thank you for being humble. May we be humble like you. And may we find our joy in you and only you, the God of our salvation, that even though life is difficult and we could fill in all sorts of other things in that blank, even though our hope, our peace, and yes, our joy is only found in you. In Jesus' name, amen.